Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg. This is another edition of the Remnant Podcast. I am uh, a little uh, revved up and overstressed and overworked, and I just raced in here, and everything was up and ready and go. So we're just going to jump right into it. But first, I need to say this week's episode of The Remnant is brought to you by, as often is, the Donors Trust. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. Um, I don't know if this is going to be a Rank Punditry podcast or if it's going to be some sort of strange hybrid. But uh, I have with me here to help me figure that out my friend and, in fact, AEI colleague, Tim Carney. You are also the opinion editor of the Washington Examiner? Exactly. Commentary editor, to be precise. Commentary editor. And Not the editor of commentary. Not yes, yet. very different. Yeah. Um, I can tell you and John Pedard's apart in many different ways. <laughs> yeah. um, and um, you are, in many ways, my old boss, Ben Wattenberg's dream, because you have now doubled, tripled your total fertility rate? Yep. Well, not at 6.6 uh, 6 yet, but at 6, kids. So, yes. Nice. Nice. So you can have your own. There can be a Carney basketball team. Yep. With with reserves. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. And uh, for listeners who don't know uh, Tim, Tim went to St. John's, and we are not going to get too deep in the weeds here, but St. John's in, in Annapolis, which is one of, whenever the final... Uh, Straussian purge comes, that place will probably just be burnt to the ground, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. But you are not, in fact, a Straussian. Um, let's not talk about that in front of the public. Fair enough. Okay. Norm- normally, exoterically, you would tell people you... Oh, I am not a Straussian. I'm not... I do not uh, subscribe to sort of the... Certainly to any branch of neoconservatism, I right. would say. And you are sort of a libertarian traditionalist kind of thing? Yeah, becoming more traditionalist, the more, especially the more kids I have. Mm-hmm. I hear that'll do it to you. Yes. So um, let's start. You told me when we came in here that you were working on a column about how Donald Trump is a poor man's Hillary Clinton. Yeah. I mean, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? <laughs> <laughs> to put it in New York lingo, uh, while Hillary Clinton is a 212 grifter, Donald Trump is a 718 hustler. That is to say uh, – A bridge know, and tunnel billionaire. A bridge and tunnel billionaire. <laughs> um, so the the raid – from what is leaking out about the, the raid on the offices of his personal attorney, Michael Cohen, it has to do with a payment that Cohen arranged for Trump, specifically for the Trump Foundation from a Ukrainian – billionaire oligarch. So I'm looking at this expecting that the Ukrainian billionaire oligarch is going to be some agent of Putin. In mm. fact, he's one of the most anti-Putin right. oligarchs in the former Soviet Union. He's uh, And in fact, he was a major donor to the Clinton Foundation. And there's uh, some reports of the Clinton – of Hillary Clinton – sort of uh, steering policy in his favor or in the favor of at least what, what his ideology was. But so the millions of dollars from this same oligarch to the Clintons, then a payment of $150,000 to Donald Trump. And what did Donald Trump do to earn that payment? He gave a 20-minute speech by video to some dinner in Ukraine. Uh, I would have done it for half that. Yes. <laughs> and you might have prepared a little more. For Probably. example, you know, you don't say the Ukraine. That's something yes, yes, I, yes. I learned that one in college. He did not learn that one beforehand. Yes. He he knew exactly one name of one uh, one Ukrainian. 
and uh, basically just gave his normal stuff. He says, hey, I, you people are great people. I, I have some friends who are like you people and uh, Obama's weak and I'll be strong. It was this weird, random, bizarre thing. Mm-hmm. So, so you've watched the whole thing? Um, no, the, there was a BuzzFeed article that was a sort of – that quoted, quoted a lot of it because it was only 20 minutes by yeah. video. So what struck me here is that this was a perfect embodiment of the difference and similarities of Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, which is that they're both kind of corrupt in the same way. But Hillary was kind of actually delivering U.S. policy right. for 10 times the money while Donald Trump was pocketing just enough to pay off some uh, uh, porn star he slept with and uh, did no preparing for it. So. While she's maybe delivering real public corruption, he is just sort of pocketing money and, uh, and enriching himself and not working hard for it. Right, but, but some of that has to do with the, the asymmetry between their positions, right? I mean, At the time, he was a candidate and she, was, she had been in government. But I think that he is governing similarly too. I mean there's, there's some of these fever swamp uh, resist types on the left who think there's – some grand conspiracies going on, either regarding Putin or you know, uh, or Trump enriching these politically connected businesses. But there's just not the competence in this right. administration to do it. There's a few people getting themselves some lobbying contracts, and there's Trump, uh, you know, making sure that the social that the Secret Service has to pay rent at his golf clubs, and it's nickel and dime yeah. corruption compared to the bigger stuff. The, one of the analogies, my friend David Fredoso wrote a book about uh, Obama that dealt with with Chicago corruption. And he would talk about the pinstripe patronage of the Daly administration and then the petty patronage of the Cook County government, mm-hmm. that they were just sort of you know a no-show job for your, your daughter-in-law for $50,000, while Daly is you know massive deals for, for giant corporations and massive kickbacks. And I feel like Trump is that, that Cook County government where he's just not doing – massive corruption on a large scale like people think he is it's just sort of uh it's it's venal and and small time like a hundred and fifty thousand dollar speech to a billionaire uh oligarch in ukraine yeah i mean it seems to me um you know the way the way Let's put it this way: If Trump had been Secretary of State, <laughs> maybe he would have. You delivered. could have figured out ways to money. But I think you're making. Yeah, I think you make a good point: is that the, you know, it's the the way the sort of uh, the sort of administrative state, nuclear, whatever you want to label you want to put on it, right? Yeah, the, the globalist cabals, they figured out ways to monetize a lot of this stuff legally, in ways that. If Donald Trump knew more about government, yeah. maybe he'd be good at it. And this was one of my critiques of it when people said, oh, because I write a lot on crony capitalism and how lobbying and the revolving door can be a problem. And they said, well, Trump says he's going to drain the swamp. And he, he had this rule on his staffers lobbying when they leave and all the lip service, a lot of it went in the right direction. But he had such a simplistic account of how it worked that I knew even if he wanted to, He was not going to be able to effectively battle it, which is the same problem Obama had. But with Trump, he just said these people are dumb and these people are all in it just to enrich themselves and I'm going to stop them. Well, really, there's something a lot more subtle and nuanced going on. The idea that, um, you know, one thing they do in the swamp here in real life is to increase government's role in an industry. Right. And then go and work for that industry. Now, liberals and conservatives both tend to miss that fact. They think they're either 
beating up an industry or shilling for an industry. But really, it's a lot more nuanced than that. And Trump and Obama totally didn't understand that. I think Ted Cruz is the only uh, guy who, who ran for president and would actually explain the way the revolving door tends to work in this way. But when you saw how shallow Trump's understanding was, you thought he really does think this is going to be easy to fix. Yeah. The corruption and healthcare and everything else. So let's talk about that for a little bit, right? For listeners who don't know, uh, Tim wrote a I, – I, I say this with no condescension and, and nothing but honesty about it – a much underappreciated book called The Big Ripoff, which was a great book that kind of explained – it opened me up to all sorts of stuff that I found it very useful. And my book sales are almost equal to the number of Facebook friends I have. <laughs> <laughs> but it opened me up to a whole school of argument uh, that was very useful for me when I was writing – liberal fascism, you know, the Marxist historian Gabriel Kolko. Yep. And and so this is one of the things that you write about a lot is this is this thing about crony capitalism, but also the sort of the dynamic that you get of uh, what is it the public choice people call it? Baptists and bootleggers? Baptists and bootleggers. Right. Why don't you explain what that is? <laughs> so the way I so the story as far as I know come the the image comes from Bruce Yandel. The way I tell this story is that you imagine a a politician um, right after prohibition is repealed down in the south. And so he doesn't have much to run on, so he's looking for two things. And a political consultant comes to him and says, all right, you need two things. You need a central issue to run on and you need campaign cash. And I know the guy who can provide both of them. And that is Oswald Johnson. The politician says, Oswald Johnson, the, the notorious bootlegger who's running rum across counties? Why, why, why would I want his money? Well, listen, Oswald Johnson's going to provide your money, and the issue is that you're going to make this a dry county. And the, well, I can't go up there with Oswald Johnson. No, you're going to go up there with Pastor Smith. And you're going to denounce Oswald. And you're going to denounce Oswald Johnson and the devil's brew, and Oswald Johnson is going to fund your campaign because... As a bootlegger, he needs you to make this a dry county because only then, only when the bars and liquor stores are driven out of business, do people turn to him. The analogy of this happens every day. I mean – Yeah, give uh, a good public policy <laughs> example of it. Uh, one of my favorite examples is the, is the life insurance industry funding an ad with a Paris Hilton lookalike where Paris Hilton is thanking the Republicans for the tax cut. The tax in question – was the estate tax. And this was the life insurance industry's effort to restore the estate tax, which mm -hmm. is the death tax. One thing is a lot of pe reason people go to life insurance companies is for get around it. estate planning to right. get around it. So they are using this populist message. That's uh, the Baptist. Oh, well, you can't just enrich the rich people so that then they can be needed to right. get around it. That, that does offer a great segue for me to bring up Donors Trust, who's our sponsor this week. If you use your charitable dollars to support freedom, you should know about Donors Trust. Donors Trust is the community foundation for the liberty movement. A donor-advised fund with Donors Trust lets you simplify your giving, receive excellent tax benefits, and add an extra layer of privacy, all with a partner that understands your values. With the recent tax law changes, many experts are recommending donor-advised funds, whatever those are. <laughs> I'm just kidding. And with good reason. Donor-advised funds act as your own private charitable savings account. Give now, take your tax benefit, and contribute later according to your schedule. 
All donor-advised funds offer the same basic services, but Donors Trust is the only donor-advised fund that shares your commitment to conservative principles. So if you go to donorstrust.org slash dingo to access your free six reasons to use a donor-advised fund guide and see for yourself why experts are recommending this fast-growing tool for charitable givers. Remnant listeners will also receive a special bonus, two additional ebooks to help you identify principle-driven charities that deserve your support. If you believe private philanthropy is the best way to strengthen civil society, and I believe it is, Donors Trust is the partner you need to strategically meet your charitable goals. So visit DonorsTrust.org slash dingo right now to get your free guide on using a donor-advised fund and discover the smarter way to support the conservative values you believe in. That's DonorsTrust.org slash dingo. Um... Um, and again, it happens uh, industry after industry. And I think you, you, the an analogy being – I mean not an analogy but a, a sister of that is what we're seeing today with Facebook where you have Mark Zuckerberg saying, well, yes, the question isn't whether there should be regulation of social media but what sort. And he's got, he went ahead in one interview proposed there should be required artificial intelligence to weed out hate comments. Mm-hmm. And the person says, well, isn't that going to be tough? Yeah, it's tough, but we already have lots of people <laughs> and spent lots of money working on it. And so it's a, another situation where you're preserving Zuckerberg's monopoly by passing these regulations, right. but you can say that you're doing the opposite. You can say that you're challenging his market power by proposing regulations. Right. So this gets me to one of my great peeves. And I, if, if it's not one of yours – we should just call off the whole podcast because I don't know who you are. Um, the persistent myth that goes back at least to Thomas Nast cartoons, if not Karl Marx, right, that by their very nature, big corporations are, quote unquote, right wing, right? <laughs> yeah. And I go, you know, and I, you, you have to, you know, you hear it all the time. It's right. Like, it's just like the, the phrases from the 99% crowd, the nation crowd, yep. are the, the, the right wing corporate power structure, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, you know. What are they right wing about, right? Because first of all, on culture war issues, oh gosh, you know they're always the early adopters, right? They always want to be sort of ahead of the curve, seem like progressive things. The ones pushing Mike Pence to take down religious freedom protect, uh, protections, right? You know, and and, and 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 you know, we don't have to be hardcore about this. There are there are good things about that dynamic, right? Oh, I mean, probably, uh, yeah, uh, in uh, getting rid of segregation and things like that. Right. You know, people forget that the biggest among the biggest opponents of uh, segregated busing in the South were the bus companies because it was a huge (laughs) regulation on the bus companies. You know, Tom Sowell's written a lot about this. Um, There's some really – I wrote a column about this. There's some great literature on this. And the whole reason why they imposed the Jim Crow stuff was – I mean, Jim Crow was an outrageous imposition – regulation – I mean, first of all, it was a cruel, horrible, moral assault on human dignity – but it was also an outrageous business regulation because what they did was they the 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 big the big agricultural interests and other interests in the South could not compete they could not afford cheap labor if there were actually efficient labor markets right yep. and so they had to regulate it so that that black poor uh, laborers couldn't vote for with their feet and yep. leave right and so anyway forget Jim Crow you know 
Disney was doing gay partnership benefits 15 years before it was sort of seen as normal and all that kind of stuff. But more importantly, on the economic front, these are not the champions of free enterprise. Right. And so then, so on the cultural front, they're not right-wing, right? They don't impose bourgeois norms on anybody, right? Yeah. They're, in fact, in some ways, it's a, as we were saying, it's a good thing because they actually recognize that everybody's a potential customer. It's like the head of the St. Louis Cardinals saying, you know, black people buy beer too, you know? Yeah. Um, and And then on the economic side... You know, unless you're talking about now under Trump, right-wing populism, sort of dirigiste mm-hmm. meddling, if that's your definition of right-wing, sort of statist, right, make America great again regulation, you could call it right-wing. But they're not – big corporations are not free market entities, right? Yeah. The the company in the last 10 years that spent the most on lobbying was General Electric under the leadership of Jeffrey Amell. The – and ML got on Obama's uh, job. It was Jobs are you know manufacturing board, all of that stuff. And he was lobbying for greenhouse gas regulations. He was lo- he was uh, lobbying for government subsidies, obvious for you know all sorts of things. But the light bulb law was almost born from right. General Electric, which you know then allowed them to sell their higher margin bulbs that you or I never would have bought uh, absent that. And so the. The, the general rule that I look at is the bigger they are in general, the more likely they are to at least go along with the big government plans of right. these politicians, often more than just go along with but support because they can afford the overhead like uh, like Facebook. And the, so why does the left always get away with that line? Uh, one, it just sort of seems reasonable at first blush that the big guys want to be left alone because our – the way we talk about – especially in America, the way we talk about capitalism, we talk about it almost as if we are a, a laissez-faire economy totally. Right. So then you think the guys who are big have benefited from laissez-faire and then there's a, a logical step to think that they continue to be laissez-faire. But I think a lot of the confusion is because uh, people on our side, on the on the free enterprise side, that they make that confusion too. They yeah. think – they describe themselves – as pro-business, one of the, my favorite things. And there's a huge difference between pro-capitalist and pro-business. Exactly. Huge business. And that, and they – you meet these congressmen and they're running for the first time and they say, well, I'm pro-business. Well, what do you mean? And then they'll go on and say ways they're pro-free enterprise. But then you meet them after their third term and then when they say they're pro-business, then they really do mean pro-business right. after they've been here for long enough. And they start explaining, oh, well, I'm for free enterprise but – Sugar is a totally different thing. We need to right. keep out the foreign sugar and prop up the sugar growers, and uh, and everybody's got their their own exception. So I think half of the reason why sort of liberals get away with always crusading against big business while pushing their agenda and pocketing their their PAC dollars is because the Republican congressmen believe it too. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a huge problem. The like the mythology of the New Deal being anti big business mm-hmm. when really what the New Deal did was explicitly and openly and proudly you know it was, it's uh, its whole goal was uh, whether they called it associationalism or um cartelization right yeah. they just they wanted big units to run everything and the people who got caught in the switches were the little independent businessmen and and everybody else and then the same thing with the robber barons um 
who was the head of the it was in 1906 the steel guy who actually asked for his industry to be socialized yeah. <laughs> you know which is what I was thinking of when you were talking about Facebook right yeah. like let's make sure there's so many regulations that we're the only big social media company that can afford to do these and things. so my personal experience with this was uh, the Washington DC government has on a very local level things called advisory neighborhood councils mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and i served on a subcommittee of an advisory neighborhood council as a volunteer. It was the Alcohol Beverage Licensing Subcommittee. So I thought it was my job to try to get as many bars to open up as possible in my neighborhood. It was H Street Northeast. So H Street had been like the great uh, black downtown. Mm -hmm. It was burned in the 1968 riots. took 35, 40 years to even start to come back. So I was there 2004 through 2006, and bar owners would come, want to open a bar, and uh, we'd have all these regulations. And so I worked pretty hard to roll back some of the very, very local regulations on them. And after the first bar opened, this other guy came in and he said he was going to open three bars. And after one of the meetings, these two different Green Party members of my Advisory Neighborhood <laughs> Commission subcommittee said, I'm not that happy about the fact that there's one guy who's going to own three of these. And then the other Green Party guy said, but here's the good thing. If one person owns all the businesses, then it's easier for us to come in and regulate him. <laughs> <laughs> Which is true. <laughs> Which is absolutely true. And this was uh, the, the conceit, and you know this uh, better than I do, but the, the conceit of, at the, the turn of the century as, as we're heading into the 20th century was, oh, modern science has right. gotten us to this point where now the, there was a, an idea that competition was wasteful redundancy. Right. That, you know, my wife and I don't, you know, that, that there are so many things in modern technology that we don't, like, keep experimenting with because we found the answer to it. They thought they had found the answer to economics. Right, right. And um, and that's one of the things that sort of gives me that, that Twilight Zone feeling in that every – so, like, you know, there are, like, I don't know, a dozen Twilight Zone episodes where someone wakes up and – like is reliving sort of Groundhog's Day, reliving the same day, yeah. but the different there are different actors playing the different roles again, <laughs> but it's the same like conversation or the same event, and always ends with the guy going to the, you know the electric chair or whatever it is. Every single conversation since the Progressive Era, if not a little earlier, in American politics, basically echoes this exact same jackassery, right? That Which we is, used to need, right? That free markets worked in the past, but they've outlived their utility, right? And Morrow Lindbergh is the person who actually coined the phrase um, wave of the future. And it was all about how capitalism has gone in the past. Now the wave of the future is this collectivism thing. They were saying the exact same thing 30 years before that, the exact same thing 30 years before that. wasn't that the idea behind the, the name of the magazine, The New Republic? Yeah. Was, yeah, well, you had an old republic and now we can have a new one. And Obama said it. He said, we know what works. We know what we need to do. The time for stale debates is over. Right. And what he was talking about was healthcare. That he knew right. what he knew what worked in healthcare of all things. And you're right; it pops up again and again. And it's, it's like the moral equivalent of war arguments. It's always the exact same. We have to put down our petty associate, petty you know ambitions, and we all have to hold hands and work together towards causes larger than ourselves. And they always mean some cause that's delivered by government. Right. Yeah. All right. So now that we've settled that issue. Good. <laughs> um, so what do you, just so we just cuz you touched on it in the beginning what do you make of the Michael Cohen thing I mean other than yeah. of course the same angle that most of the mainstream media is going to take away from it just as you have the this crony capitalism thing yeah. the second most important thing <laughs> the second most important thing is that you 
going after lawyers is extraordinary, but there's not a higher burden of proof to raid the offices of a lawyer than there would be to raid the offices of Jonah Goldberg or any other businessman or private institution. You mean constitutional? And and just – no, the the specific question is, is is there probable cause here? But the thing is you ask different – and lawyers are people who can also break the law. Sure. And so when you're raiding Michael Cohen's office – the, the simplest question is, did, is Michael Cohen suspected? Do they have probable cause to suspect that Michael Cohen may have broken the law? And that is a, to- that is a question that can be asked totally separate from the possibility that Donald Trump did something mm-hmm. illegal. And I just can't stop thinking of Martha Stewart who did go to jail but that's – but not because she was caught up in insider trading but because she was trying to protect her – broker who would, who might have been caught up with it. So it's entirely possible that they think uh, Michael Cohen may have broken a law in a way that doesn't in any way implicate Donald Trump. And so that would be the first thing that I would say. And the, and the second half of it would be where are their higher sort of burdens? It has to do with can they breach the wall of attorney-client privilege? And this is incredibly complicated. I just sort of reading up on it, but basically they sent in the uh, they, they sent in team like privilege teams to yeah, yeah. make sure that this that from this clean wall, teams, right? Yeah, look at it separately to yeah. make sure that the wall wasn't um, being breached. So just the tone I see of you know thus it begins on on Twitter and Facebook and cable news today that we've that that some wall that was protecting Trump has been knocked down and now he's vulnerable and now there's a breach and they're going to come in and Mueller's going to you know and he's going to be impeached i've heard that tone before and i th- you always want to say what do we what do we know and what we know is that somebody said there's probable cause to uh, suspect something that Michael Cohen has suggests a crime. That could be a Donald Trump crime. could be a Michael Cohen crime. It could be one of Michael Cohen's other clients or something. Yeah. But so I think that we, we tend to, because this involves Trump, make it be a, a bigger, more Trump-focused thing than we have evidence to – Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, look, a- absent other facts, and by the time we get out of this podcast, for all we know yeah. – you know, Michael Cohen's gone on a three-state killing spree or something. But I think the fact that he referred it to the U.S. District Attorney of the Southern District of New York suggests that maybe, at least at first blush, it is not central to the Russian collusion story probe because... Because he has a fairly broad uh, mandate as a special counsel. He can pick up things that are not directly related to this at all if he just happens to come across it. So to hand it off is one of the more extraordinary things here that he's saying this isn't even in my orbit. Right. And and, and so at the same time... So I, I, I think... If there was any way Mueller could have defensively, plausibly connected it to the probe, he would have kept it for himself and yep. done a no-knock raid. But instead, so the fact that he handed it off, absent other information, because I, I cannot stand all of the, the sort of what I keep calling on Twitter the race to be wrong first, you know, where <laughs> everyone just leap, you know, full on to like have these absolutely garbagey hot takes before like Wiley e. Coyote they hit a brick wall, you know. Yes. So I don't know, right? But at the same time, I think that the odds of it. Whatever they have on Cohen that he's going to flip on Trump are very unlikely, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and but the thing I, I got just I just did a rant about this over on the Glop podcast, so I apologize to listeners who listen to both. But one of the things that does try to drive me crazy is that they keep talking about the president's lawyer, 
like he is, you know, John Hausman from the paper chase, right? And, you know, like, and, and the president has some impressive lawyers, or did before they started to all quit. But, mm-hmm. you know, Michael Cohen's a bag man, you know? <laughs> and, and, I, I played baseball with guys like this in, in New York. Yeah. <laughs> I know, uh, yeah. Well, that's the thing. So I was trying to get at this in a corner post. Like, there is this weird, and I know he, I, I assume Cohen's Jewish, right? But there is this weird thing that you get across all sorts of ethnicities, at least white ethnicities. I don't know if it's the same thing. Because I think black sort of culture has their own thing going along these lines, to be sure. But you get these guys, and I think it even happens with cops, where they think that, like, the Godfather, Goodfellas, Sopranos aesthetic is cool and fashionable, right? You know, and apparently Michael Cohen, in-house at the Trump Organization, his nickname was Tom Hagen. And I... I don't know if you have that anywhere else in the country yeah. other than in New York, you know. Oh yeah. No, there there are kids who would walk around high school, you know, saying that they were mobbed up because, yeah, yeah. you know, their dad once painted a porch of one of the mob guys. <laughs> um and uh, he could hook me up. So yeah, that idea of being of being uh, tough and bad like that and that that would appeal to Trump. I mean the the again, I just feel like it's one of the reasons I thought Maggie Haberman has done a decent job of reporting on Trump is that she sort of knows his type. Yeah, and yeah, that, yeah. I mean, not not that Trump, that there's a lot of people like Donald Trump, but he, a better way of putting it, knows where he comes from. Mm-hmm. Knows, and in, I didn't grow up in Queens. I lived in Manhattan and then we, we lived in Westchester. But then – but you still knew a lot of these, uh, these types that yeah. Trump surrounds himself with and who's convinced, all right, I want my lawyer to be like that. Yeah. I want my doctor to be like that, and the the typecasting that that Trump has done. I mean, he, the the some people say he picked Rex Tillerson because he looked like a secretary. Yeah, no, no, there's a lot to that. Yeah, um, and, well, lots of people forget the role that Roy Cohn played in Trump's life, right? And Roy Cohn was a pretty scummy, hard charging, you know, sma- smash mouth lawyer. And there's this great, I think it's an art of the deal. There's this great telling passage where. Trump goes on a great length about how much he prizes loyalty. And he says, you know, people badmouth Roy Cohn, but he was loyal, blah, 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 and goes on all this kind of stuff. He doesn't, you know, all these white shoe guys, these Wall Street guys, yeah. you know, the second there's a sign of trouble, they leave you. That's not Roy Cohn. He sticks with you, blah, blah, blah. And of course, when Trump found out that Roy Cohn had AIDS, he completely <laughs> turned. And even and Trump even says in the thing, he's like, Roy Cohn's the kind of guy who'd be with you at your deathbed in the hospital, blah, 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 blah. And then, of course, when Roy Cohn was on his deathbed in the hospital, Trump completely cold shouldered him. <laughs> I mean the 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 loyalty thing has been an interesting question for me. I'm Timothy Patrick Carney. I'm an Irish Catholic. You know, you read the uh, we don't traffic and stereotypes. <laughs> we read you read Plato's Republic, and he talks about the guardian class being these soldiers who are totally loyal, and analogizes them to dogs. And I was thinking, I think he's talking about <laughs> Irish Catholics. Socrates is predicting Irish Catholics here, um, and so it is really one of those virtues that sometimes I think intellectuals uh, demean mm. loyalty too much because oh well you should be loyal to someone as long as they're correct and uh, and like that's how you get like the the Jennifer Aniston Brad Pitt idea of marriage right right and so the the idea of loyalty is one of those ways in which I think Trump appealed to regular people in a way that politicians didn't this mm-hmm. tells it like it is which never meant speaks in accordance with the truth <laughs> right it meant sort of seems more like one of us so right. how does a guy who lives in a mansion on top of a tower seem like one of us and that's it is that he's not uh guiding 
he's not basing things on ideology and he's not basing it based the way, you know, Obama did uh, an FDR on, you know, who has a Princeton and, and Harvard PhDs. He's, those are not the standards that normal people are using. He said, do I think you'll be loyal? And then – he would say, well, have you been successful in business? And frankly, that's the standard. And do you have good hair? And do you have good hair? <laughs> do you look the part? And yeah. that's the, standard, the standards by which normal people judge normal people. Yeah. And to the degree that we're running into problems with it, it's when you put the median voter <laughs> as the president of the United States, it's, uh, the, the, the model might not work that well. Yeah, although, you know, and look, I know the Bill Buckley thing has been so overquoted with the, you know, I'd rather the first 2,000 names yeah. in the Boston phone book. But the median voter has, I think, better time horizon management issues than, than Donald Trump does. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's some specific things going on. Might watch a, a little less TV and, yeah. and be able to focus on a task for more than... Read a page. Uh, yeah. You know, that kind of thing. All right, so let's switch gears again. You were, if I recall correctly, somewhat hopeful about the quote-unquote libertarian moment. <laughs> I, I was... Um, I was Supportive, but very skeptical of it. And um, as I'm fond of saying, I was right. <laughs> um, is is libertarian? I mean, is is a is a meaningful libertarianism? Not libertinism, not yeah. sort of social libertarianism, whatever. Is 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 that ever coming back? The reason to not think so is that. Have you ever seen those diagrams where it's it's two dimensional? It's sort of are you. Um, more authoritarian or yeah, individualistic, yeah. or you more and and it's got the two dimensions and the, and so you've got four quadrants. You've got free markets, you know, libertine, which would be the libertarian corner. You've got the uh, socially conservative, but economically not so much the kind of Trump corner. Then you've got the big government um, libertine corner and you've got the the big government more conservative corner, which is occupied mostly by weird Catholic. Twitter people under the age of 30 right now. Mm. Um, but that that libertarian corner doesn't have a lot of people in it. And we know all their names because they all live in Washington, D.C. Right. And that's... I Megan McCardle called them on the show the Orange Line Libertarians. The Orange Line Libertarians. <laughs> and I remember disagreeing... This is going way back. You were on a panel for America's Future Foundation in like in 2004 days, yeah. and yeah. one of your jokes was um, the libertarians are, are like the Huns. You want them on your side. You don't want them in charge. And I remember I was thinking I, – I'd, I'd almost turn that around and say I want there to be 538 libertarians in this country. I want them to be in charge of the government and be nowhere near my daughter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I don't necessarily believe that either but – it was kind of nice for me to have to know that the Republican Party as a lever that was sort of on one end is half of the population that's pushing down on it. The the lever was acting as a tool to advance policies more libertarian mm-hmm. than the populace would be. Yeah. And I think more correct than the populace would be. The the trade wars are incredibly popular. Um, and the and protectionism and regulation and subsidies and all that stuff are more popular than they are good. Mm-hmm. So to the degree that libertarians had outsized influence, I think that was advancing good policy. And uh, it took the Republican establishment being in its pre-2016 shape. And so has Trump permanently smashed that? Probably because uh, the point that the liberals won't see here that you and I were talking about earlier – 
big business doesn't have a vested interest in in libertarianism. They right. they want lower taxes, and they got it. Um, but past that, there's no. What we had was an ideological, intellectual commitment to less government that operated through the Republican Party, and Trump has smashed it. Yeah. So there are a couple of things going on there. That so first of all, it reminds me of this rant I always do about how if you took liberals at their word about what they wanted conservative billionaire types to be like, it would be the Koch brothers, right? <laughs> yeah. For criminal justice reform, for drug legalization, right? For increased immigration. But they also want free markets, right? Yeah. And it sort of – it reminds me – we can talk about it in a minute – about the Kevin Williamson stuff. If it hadn't been for his abortion comments, it would have been something else because yeah. the whole point is anything – it's the nearest weapon to hand because they just don't like competing centers of power, right? Mm-hmm. But getting back to this for a second – so – so you went a different place than I thought you would because I thought part of the libertarian moment argument was that Americans were becoming more libertarian, right? And my argument against that was always that if you looked at the way a lot of those polls were done, it was they picked four or five issues, mm-hmm. guns, gays, whatever, and said, look, there's a, there's a libertarian center or whatever that yeah. argument is, right? And the problem is is that there weren't a lot of human beings that matched the polling, right? Because you're more libertarian than I am, but I've become so much more libertarian in the last 15 years. There are a bunch of issues. If you only ask me about those issues, I'm a freaking flaming libertarian, right? But there are other issues where I'm a conservative. And most conservatives are libertarian about the things that they're libertarian. Most Americans are libertarian about the things they're libertarian on. And then they want the government to do everything else. Well, that's why I I would sometimes describe libertarianism as a truce. It's, you know... right. You get to uh, a, I mean, have your weddings and in your institutions have your bathrooms the way you want them, um, and I get to have my church and have it as I want it, and I get to keep uh, more of my money and you know all of that. That that libertarianism is uh, multilateral disarmament, right. and that it's a and that's where that's where religious tolerance comes from. Yeah. After like the religious wars of Europe and the Treaty of Westphalia. Everyone tried to impose their religion on everybody else. It didn't work. And then it, so instead, as yes. I think it's um, – what's his name? Um, Herbert Butterfield puts it. He says, you know, when they got tired of trying to – when they realized the futility of imposing their beliefs by the sword, they agreed to sort of have some religious pluralism, right? Yeah. And, and I, I think it's the same And principle. I think that libertarianism can be that. But yeah, there, that doesn't mean that there's a bunch of people who want all these things at, at the same time. I mean it's the same, it's the same fallacy that drives it. Reporters constantly to say, "Well, is this Mike Bloomberg's time?" Because people want these right. these uh, pragmatic centrists, da da da, and there just aren't that many people who who hold that set of views. It's it's one of the. I mean, it's why so many of the analyses of oh, an independent, a centrist run. Uh, it's it, uh, Nick Gillespie and Matt Welch wrote a book that I thought was was good and provocative. Declaration of Independence, like D E N T S. And their argument was that duopolies and monopolies tend to fall to competition and the Republican-Democratic one would too. Um, But I wrote a fairly positive review of it. But my critique was that it sounded too much like the Michael Bloomberg articles that I'd read every few years. And that the the tribalism is is a little bit stronger. Well, so that gets to – back to where your answer actually ended up. You know, that independence – argument makes sense in a system that can have multiple parties, right? Mm-hmm. But as long as it's winner-take-all election system, yep. you can only really have two parties for a sustained period of time, right? And and so 
the question is, is like you were saying how you how maybe Donald Trump has broken the ability for the for the libertarian leaning crowd to use the Republican Party as a lever. Isn't this all an argument for saying that basically we can keep it on the parties, but it's in, generally the real problem isn't that the establishment or that institutions or the parties are too powerful. It's that they're too weak, right? And if the parties had been mm-hmm. – were stronger, they could have – first of all, they could have stopped Trump, whatever. They could do all sorts of things. But the problems that we have in our country are because we are rapidly approaching – the world that Obama described in his second inaugural, which is a world with a very powerful centralized government and a bunch of atomized individuals. So uh, two things. One, uh, just to add to the problem of the parties, for me, the most important issue is abortion because it's an issue of life and death. And the fact is that the Republican Party, while I think the establishment often didn't care about it, there were people close enough to power that the Republican Party was probably also a lever for the pro-life cause and made sure. the party more pro-life than the base was. I used to think that all these people in Michigan, whatever, were all going to church every week, the blue-collar voters who were voting for Rick Santorum. They weren't. They're mm-hmm. not, as, as we see with a lot of the Trump vote being the people who um, who don't go to church. But, yeah, so the the root of this is the concentration of power makes more things be winner-take-all. Right. And that on the local level, and I, I sort of jokingly describe my my local alcohol beverage license regulators as Green Party people, um, but we didn't actually identify as a Green Party person, or like I wasn't the the conservative libertarian one. I just right. they, they knew me as a guy with the Irish name, um, and that those that's things, how I know you. Yes, <laughs> those things on the uh, on the local level. Um, the, those bigger divisions are are not as fierce, and that's where people are able to live out their lives as political animals without it having to be winner take all. Right, right. And that and that uh, the the centralization leading to the atomization that those sound like two opposite things, right? Oh, are we hyper individualistic or are we over centralized? Robert Frost actually wrote a a poem called "Build Soil," in which the the the, the poet character says we're either too far out or too far in we're either too centralized or, or too atomized um but tocqueville and you know a hundred authors since him have been saying no those are those are two different sides of the same coin right um that that the more that the attentions or the the strands going up the stronger they are the more it tends to dissolve the the horizontal band so i the you mentioned obama the life of julia is a perfect example right. of that and i do think that that is uh when we talk about when you know arthur brooks talks about the the people being at each other's throat and that sort of stuff we can talk about how oh well We've forgotten how to disagree agreeably. All of that is symptoms of the cause that um, it's harder to live out our lives as political animals on a human scale. Right. And we can't not be political animals uh, because we are. And so then we try to live it out on the scale of of CNN and Mm -hmm. and the national political scene. Yeah. No, as I put it in my forthcoming book, Suicide of the West, pre-order now, we've cleared all the forests of civil society and so when you've done that the only thing that ever, the average person can now see is washington whereas in the, or the central government or whatever you want to call it yeah but whereas in the past you know those forests served as as independent ecosystems for people to live and deal with each other on their own terms and which is why i think like we had a pa- i did a panel with yasha monk last week mm-hmm. and 
What's interesting is, you know, he's one of these democracy in peril guys, and I think he makes some perfectly fine descriptive points, but it seems to me almost all these problems problems are so much further upstream. You know, it's, it's civil yeah. society breakdown. I know you're working on a book about all of this kind of stuff. And it it the people who want to fix everything in Washington are looking at the wrong end of the sewage pipe, you know? And, and that this – so I camped out in Occupy Wall Street and I remember being surprised at how little they were talking about Wall Street except as a – totem for big business. Right. And I wanted them to, you know, to f- I want to find common ground on corporate welfare or the Iraq war or something. And it was all campaign finance. Yeah. And I was like, okay, fine. They, they, the powerful people are in the smoke-filled room. They've locked you out. They have all the levers of power. What are they doing that upsets you? And they almost none of the occupiers got there because that fact was the offensive fact. Right. And so at first I chalked it up as them having no there there. But then I realized what they're uh, – and Occupy itself was this weird like mini democracy with all these hokey right. uh, mechanisms. And they are political animals who wanted to exercise uh, their political muscle but – either because they were so young or a liberal mindset, the only place they could see it happening was Washington, D.C. And then similarly with Trump, I think that the uh, a big part of my book is about how it's in the places where there's the civil society is more eroded that he did the best in the early primaries. And again, they know in their heart there's this urge to not just live out your own life but to shape the world around you. And they don't see – sort of the scaffolding to do it on the local level. Right. So they think we need a strong man in that office who's going to fight for us. That's the only way they can imagine exercising their political muscle. Yeah, that was, that was sort of the central theme of Robert Nisbet's quest for community, right? And that, and and one of the things he points out is that most of the totalitarian movements of the early mid-20th century were really quests to recreate a sense of community, right? And even for the Nazis, you know, Nazis bad, all that kind of <laughs> stuff. But... You know, there's a reason why Italy, Germany, and the United States had the kind of tumultuous politics that they did in the 20s and or the, in the 30s in the United States and the 20s in, in Germany and in Italy. It's because they were the last to industrialize. They did it. The, they were not only the last; they did it the fastest. Mm-hmm. They they urbanized the fastest, and so you had all these deracinated, alienated, alienated young men, as FDR called them, forgotten men, mm-hmm. who were kicked out of their settled traditional civil society communities yeah. and sent to the big cities, and they were lost, and they wanted. The government to recreate that sense of of belonging and the 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 dichotomy we constantly had. Oh, are these Trump supporters the core guys, not the people who voted for him over Hillary? Are they mostly driven by uh, economic anxiety or by uh, cultural resentment? And the the one of the core arguments of of my book is that a they're the same thing, but b fine chalk it up as cultural resentment. But that doesn't you can't say oh well that means they're they're it's just bigotry or it's all white right. men upset that they don't have the control they used to have. Maybe they're upset that there's not a Memorial Day parade through their town anymore. Right. Maybe they're upset and not just that they like parades, but a way through. I just think about my own life. I I am basically. The baseball commissioner of my my Catholic parish, yeah. and there's so many ways in which people rely on me on a day to day basis. My family, my work, my other work, my parish or swim club, and I get to shape the world around me. Right. And that comes from my a being in elite circles, b being in religious circles. If you're not in either of those, then you're you're that alienated individual. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a good way to think about it. I mean, um, oh, I just wanted to tell you so. Uh, I went to a family funeral on my wife's side. 
um, what year was Occupy Wall Street the big year? Uh, 2011. Yeah, okay. So 2011. And for listeners who don't already know, my wife's from Fairbanks, Alaska. So we go up there in January 2011 during a cold snap. <laughs> and which meant that this is not a wind chill number. This is just the ambient temperature. It hit the coldest it hit while we were there, I think, was 54 below zero, but it never got warmer than about 40 below zero while we were there. And, um, and one day I'll tell stories about how that's just like being on a different planet. But so I've been married to my wife since 2001. I've been dating, I've been involved with my wife since the late 90s. And I've been dining out. In fact, my wife's from Alaska. All the time, and I'd never been there in the winter until that time. Right? And it was like everyone else was like, "Oh, it sucks! It's so cold here." I was like, "This is awesome! I just I got to finally experience this." Right? And so I had, you know, my wife was driving me around in downtown and all that kind of stuff. I've been there in the summer, which is fantastic. And down in front of like City Hall, there are a couple like yurts or not quite igloos, right, with smoke curling out of them. And it was the Fairbanks, Alaska Occupy Wall Street. <laughs> I laughed my ass off, you know, because on the one hand, it's kind of sweet and like civic whatever. But like on the other hand, the idea that some dude at Goldman Sachs was going to do X, but then someone told him, did you hear about the protests in Fairbanks, you know, where they're sitting out in 50 below zero weather, you know? But anyway, I just thought you'd like that. All right. So in the two, three minutes we have left, let's just do some very quick lightning round rank punditry. The, what happens in 2018 midterms? Uh, Democrats take the House for sure, probably the Senate. You think probably the Senate? I think probably they. It's it's tough, but you, I look at places like Claire McCaskill, and um, they they've got some headwinds. But McCaskill, so she's a senator from Missouri. She's just such a good politician. Yeah. Because people say I'm not a I'm not a professional politician. She is. She's good in some of these other states. You know, uh, Florida, et cetera. Just the history is that in, in those midterms they hang on. So while the Democrats have to run the table to pick it up, I think it's better than a coin toss. They will. Well, if just as a side note, if if they take back both the House and the Senate, that will change our lives as pundits in ways that are unimaginable, I think. Because, first of all, how Trump reacts to an all-Democrat yeah. Senate, House, Congress, whatever, will be huge. What happens to Fox News, where I am a contributor, if all of a sudden the Democrats run everything, I think will be huge. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the the ratings at Fox nosedived like nothing they'd ever seen before after Romney lost. And the dispiritedness could be a huge factor and the stabbed in the back narrative mm -hmm. and, you know, and yeah. all that. That'll be fascinating. I'm not sure about the Senate, but I, I think it's, yeah. you know, in, their, in the grand tradition of Herman Kahn, thinking the unthinkable is interesting. Uh, what else? Oh, so I we disagree on foreign policy stuff. What do you think happens in Syria? What do you think should happen? In Syria? What I'm hoping happens is similar to what happened a year ago, which was a discreet targeted missile strike at military operations to make it to send a message to Assad that there will be consequences every time he uses chemical weapons on his people and specifically stopping very short of anything that could trigger a war because I don't think oh, Assad deserves to be deposed and worse, but that doesn't mean that that would be in our interest to do so. And the Iraq war and the Libya war, both of these were regime changes in the Muslim world where the people in charge were absolute uh, monsters and we have it again. 
we just know that ISIS is still there. We know that al-Qaeda like syndicates are there. We know whatever Russia and Iran's involvement is won't be over if Assad were driven out. And we know that U.S. Uh, nation building and occupation in these countries has not been clean and easy. So in short, I'm hoping we don't do in Syria what we did in Iraq and Libya. Okay. And with that, um, not because I wouldn't want to keep talking, and I apologize to the listeners who feel like I've been rushing through this, but we have a very hard out of the studio because our friend and colleague, Christina Hoff Summers, has it for 3 o'clock today on Tuesday. I don't know if we'll have a second podcast this week. Uh, it remains to be seen. I am driving first thing in the morning to Denison University in Ohio, where I'm giving a speech on Wednesday evening. All of the usual stuff, please subscribe. Please give reviews. We're still, you know, we're, we're, we're hitting diminishing returns on the reviews. I would like to get to 2,000 reviews on iTunes. And um, thanks again to everybody who's pre-ordered the book. Thank you to Tim Carney. Oh, I should tell people this just because people know because Tim's, you know, he's sort of the – he's kind of like – remember that guy in the, the Lou Ferrigno Hulk who is obsessed with finding the Hulk and no one believes him? <laughs> that is sort of Tim and his relationship to crony capitalism. And he may be the most expensive scholar at the American Enterprise Institute <laughs> <laughs> because he costs us – and to our credit, you know, sometimes corporations get really mad about the stuff he writes – and and we say, well, okay, see you later, um, which is, I think, very much to AI's credit. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, RemnantPod at Gmail. Uh, Jonah Remnant on Twitter. Suicide of the West comes out April 24. Keep hope alive. Thank you, Tim, for coming. Thank you. <laughs>